Are you an Amazon shopper like Patra and I? Do you love Off Air with Emily and Patra? When you're ready to search the depths of Amazon, visit us at offairwithep.com first. Click on the Amazon ad and continue shopping like normal. This helps keep Off Air with Emily and Patra going strong. We receive a small percentage of any purchases you make through our affiliate link, but it's literally zero extra costs to you. Psychotic geeks obsessed with every little detail. It'll never get on the air. Well, I think it's good for a show to go off the air before it becomes stale and repetitive. I've just been informed that we are going off the air. Off air with Emily and Catherine. Welcome. Hello. To Off Air with Emily and Patra. Oof. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like we haven't done this in like 20 years. Right, because we are two days later recording yeah. than usual. It's all right. <sighs> this week has been kind of crazy. It has been a crazy week. Do we want to just discuss it openly? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So say it. Our boss got fired. Our boss got fired. Hallelujah. <laughs> I like the middle of that word. I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't say that, but who gives but that no. fuck? Like long distance high five to everybody. Cause yeah, we're was, all, we're it's great. We're not upset. Um, Damn, we just said that. Shit. <laughs> like, like right off the bat too. It's fine. We know he didn't listen. That's true. Snap. Um, so that happened. We mm-hmm. launched five new websites on Monday. Emily launched five new websites on Monday. Well, bless. Thanks. Yes. So that happened on Monday. Mm-hmm. And Monday's episode was actually late because just crazy stuff happened. I I'm sat sorry. In, I'm scrubbing my I lips. I joined Patra <laughs> on the morning show mm-hmm. again because we're like in this limbo period. And right. And I've taken all the opportunities I can. And we have so much fun oh, on the show together. We have such a good time. Like my actual friends who listen will message me and be like, hey, you can tell you're having so much fun today. And they're just like so happy that I'm happy. I love not, your friends. And not like miserably struggling through things. So yeah. I they're right. I'm I've been happy this week. So yeah. So normally I would edit the podcast like because I get in here early just as early as Patrick usually mm-hmm. did, does on the morning show. And I would edit it while I was doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't do it because I was active, on I was show. actively on the show. It is and hard so, to do anything because yeah. I I have a another job outside of the morning show, but half of my workday is on the show, mm-hmm. so it's hard to get anything done. So I do like a normal job in like half the time. Yeah, so we did that, and then mm-hmm. I had like I had meetings all day Monday, all day Monday. So it was like I got off the show, went to a meeting, had to do the rest of my job. Had to edit the podcast. Had mm-hmm. to do three, two more meetings. It was, it was crazy. It was a crazy. So we day. did that on Monday. I don't really remember what happened Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, mm-hmm. but we have just been cranking out the work. Basically, yeah. it's just been a very busy week. It We're has both been. very tired. Yeah, like I normally get here at like ten after five, and now I have to get here at like four forty. Yeah, and oh my that gosh, half hour makes a difference. It does, and my eyebrows need that extra thirty minutes of sleep. Yeah, but both Patrick and I have both <laughs> brought our entire makeup bag collection <laughs> to the morning show every morning oh. this week. Done a full face of makeup, That's just right. sitting across from each other doing our makeup. And right. It's like, well, just you can hear us like. Like little plastic tubes hit the counter. Yep. And then the mics come on. Yep. Good morning. Yeah. The other day, I think it was yesterday, I was like brushing my foundation on because I was like, well, I can't let it sit. So I'm like sitting there talking yeah. in the mic with, with my foundation <laughs> brush going. And I love it. It has been an interesting but really good week. It has been an interesting and really good week. It's also been kind of like long. 
It has been long. Like, like you I'm said, so what did we do Tuesday? And I was like, man, Tuesday, I, I, remember. I had a meeting or I had a recording. I had to deliver office party. I went to divorce class. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it was like that day was fucked. Yeah. Yesterday or no. Yeah. What happened Wednesday? What was Wednesday? Was it meetings? I don't even know. I, I recorded know. an interview with Larry from Three's Company yesterday. Yeah, you did. I mean, uh, this week. It's just been, it has just been one of those weeks. It has been. Mm. insane it's yeah. been like a good but also not the greatest just combination it's just like yes it's a week it's a week and i'm ready for the weekend i gotta work tomorrow though i'm sorry that's okay it's i'm gonna Easter run five weekend. miles it's 420 weekend 420 weekend <laughs> hopefully you all enjoyed your holiday whichever holiday you were celebrating or both <laughs> holidays maybe you were celebrating both who knows turn up um, for jesus i'm sorry if that offended anybody but i'm not that sorry yeah it's okay I, I mean, I don't want to offend you, but... <laughs> but you shouldn't get offended by what other people's opinions are. That's true, as I pick my nose across from Emily. It's okay. I love it. Okay. Um, I feel... Oh, I knew... Okay, I remembered. I'm so proud of myself. Okay, so a couple episodes ago, uh-huh. we talked to my grandpa. Yes. And then I, like, spent the next three weeks talking about stories <laughs> Yes. <laughs> suggested. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about the Stillwater, Oklahoma murders. Mm-hmm. Now, he has a story that I forgot to tell during oh. that part. And it's funny. So okay, basically, this teenage daughter and her best friend killed her parents. Right. Killed this teenage daughter's parents. And so the way he described it, I don't remember the neighborhood layout, but it was like kind of like catty corner type of situation. Mm-hmm. And it was like probably... 50 yards away. Mm-hmm. The next door neighbor to my grandpa, I think that's what he said. Um, one of the neighbors in the neighborhood um, had a daughter mm-hmm. and he, she had, she was like, I think he said she was like eight or so. And that night she, he was getting, or that morning he was getting ready to go to work and she had just gotten a kitten. And this is really sad. Oh, say it. He backed out of the driveway and. <gasps> no. Ran over the cat. No. And so he was like, well, shoot, I got to pick, I got to like clean it up before she wakes up and sees it. And, you know, and so he takes care of it, puts it in a trash bag with a Mm -hmm. shovel because he's going to go across to the field and bury the cat. Right. And so he's got this cat in a trash bag and he's carrying a shovel and he's walking across the road. And little did he know that this murder had just happened (gasps) next door, pretty much next door. Mm -hmm. So there's all these police officers. And he said, grandpa's like, he got Swamped. He's got a he's got a bag, black trash bag and a shovel walking across to the field to go bury this cat. And they were like, what? Like guns out. Oh, my God. Pistols pointed. What's in the bag? And he's like, it's a cat. Like oh freaked God. out. And I so he it. he obviously had to show him. And they're, they're like, right. but I would die. Could you even oh imagine? Oh, my gosh. I was like, oh, he probably. I mean, he obviously felt bad for running over his daughter's cat. Right. And then oh. he's getting pistols pointed at him. Oh, my and, God are like attacked by the police and oh he was like <laughs> you're arrested sure you for being the story. worst dad ever <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like make sure you oh. tell that story so oh geez i finally remembered to do oh, it i'm so glad you remembered that that <laughs> was, was important it was funny <laughs> i was like gosh could you imagine just be just walking out like not even knowing what's going mm-hmm. on and then just be like literally looking like a murder suspect <laughs> right my god <laughs> oh jeez, oh, so, i love that yeah <clears throat> Um, I think that's really all the update. Is that all of our... So I um, have been going to the gym pretty regular. Tomorrow's April 20th, and that's Tour de Trails. It's supposed to be 
like 40 degrees and raining tomorrow mm-hmm. for that run. And it's uh, supposed which I, to be beautiful on Sunday too, which I is so know. stupid. And I'm like, I'm working it before. So I have to like look kind of cute and be like dressed up and sporty. And that's, I don't, that's not my aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't, I'm not feeling it whatsoever. And my shoulder hurts from being an old lady at the gym. So me and Emily are going to go eat lunch after this. Yeah, we are. And that'll make me feel better. Yeah. I'll eat something fried and then I'll be tomorrow morning be like, why am I gassing out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, We have fun weekend plans, but we're, we'll are we talk about that next week. Yeah. We'll talk about our fun we'll weekend that we just had. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. It's your turn. Well, it's my turn to go first. So I don't know what my problem is. I was super worried that I had already done this woman. Mm-hmm. But I haven't. I don't. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure. Some of these these people just run together. Yeah. And plus, I'm, like, hooked on moms killing their kids lately. Right. Yeah. I got to stop. Yeah. Got to stop it. Just but, don't kill yours and we don't have to worry about it. Oh, my God. If anything, my kids are going to kill me to get them to, like, leave them the fuck alone. <laughs> my God. <laughs> anyway, moving on. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. This is a really good one. So this one, I mean, it's really, it seems really good to me because I was born in 1981 and Mm -hmm. my family, we were all super into like true crime and like sleazy, trashy talk show type made for TV movie stuff. So this was a made for TV movie in 1989 called Small Sacrifices. Mm. Yeah. It was also a book by Anne Rule. Ooh. Yes, ma'am. So it's definitely going to be good. So it's a good one. Okay. So I really loved it. And plus, I love Farrah Fawcett anyway. And I love Duran Duran. Yeah. Okay, so you totally know who I'm doing, but it's fine. Diane Downs was born in Phoenix, Arizona on August 7th, 1955. Two parents, Wesley and Willa Dean. I love the name Willa Willa Dean. Dean. I love it. I do too. Diane graduated from Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, where she met her boyfriend, Steve Downs. After high school, she enrolled at Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in California but was expelled after only one year for promiscuous behavior. Oh, (laughs) goodness. Um, I feel like that's not hard to do. I know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, same. Definitely would happen. And soon returned to her parents' home in Arizona. On November 13th, 1973, Diane, after running away from her parents' house, married high school boyfriend Steve Downs. Their first child, Christiane, was born in 1974. Cheryl Lynn followed in 1976, and Stephen Daniel um, was born in 1979. The couple divorced in 1980 because Steve Downs thought that Stephen Daniel, known as Danny, was the result in an, of an affair Diane had. She was just kind of a yeah, kind of a thought. Hmm. Um, Diane worked for the United States Postal Service and was assigned to mail routes in the city of Cottage Grove, Oregon. On May 19, 1983, just before 11 p.m., Diane drove herself to McKenzie Williamette Hospital with a gunshot wound to her forearm, her three children in the back seat of the car, Cheryl seven, already dead, Danny three, paralyzed from the waist down, and Christy eight, who had suffered a debilit- disabling stroke, um, were all in the back seat. Diane claimed that she was carjacked on a rural road near Springfield, Oregon, that a man with shaggy hair flagged her down and demanded her car. She refused, and the man shot her and the children. So I know why I think I did this, because Susan Smith. Yeah. Yeah, and I just keep getting them mixed up, I think. That, and we listen to so many true crime podcasts that... Yeah. Yeah, because this one's familiar, but I I definitely don't think that 
you've done it. So. Okay. Um, immediately, hospital staff and investigators were suspicious of Diane's story. They said her behavior was too calm for a person who had experienced such a traumatic event. I mean, yeah, you just saw your kids shot in front of you. Also made a number of statements that both police and hospital workers found inappropriate and unlikely. She said she was out sightseeing with the children and decided to take a scenic route home on a deserted country road, but it was late, so it was dark as fuck. So scenic or not, you wouldn't have been able to see anything. Yeah, and the youngest was three, so... I don't know. My three-year-old, my children, when they were three, would never have just sat in the car looking out the window like, oh, my gosh, that's pretty. Especially not if it's pitch black out. Yeah, not if it's Stupid. Idiot. Um, police were also suspicious of the fact that Diane was only shot in the forearm while the children were, like, fatally wounded. Mm-hmm. The forensic evidence did not match her story. There was no blood spatter on the driver's side door of the car, nor was there any gunpowder residue on the driver's door or on the interior door panel. Suspicions heightened when Diane, upon arrival at the hospital to to visit her very wounded children, Mm -hmm. phoned Robert Knickerbocker, a married man and former co-worker in Arizona with whom she had been having an affair. He was married. Uh, I said that. LOL. Knickerbocker also reported to police that Downs had stalked him and seemed willing to kill his wife if it meant that she could have him to herself. Oh, my goodness. I know. He stated that he was relieved that she had left for Oregon and that he was able to reconcile with his wife. Like, I don't remember exactly because I had watched quite a few things about Diane Downs lately. Um, Why she moved to Oregon. Mm -hmm. But I remember it being like a relief. Like, okay, this is finally over, this affair. And this couple tried to move on with their lives, apparently. Um, So within a month of the shootings, with her two surviving children still in the hospital, Downs or Diane began giving a series of bizarre interviews to the media. She just really liked the attention. She liked to replay what had happened. She liked to go over it. Mm. Um, she liked to talk about how, like, she just liked the spotlight. She yeah. liked the attention. Diane did not disclose to police she owned a twenty-two caliber handgun, but both Steve Downs, her ex-husband, and Robert Knickerbocker informed police that she did. Uh, investigators later discovered that she bought the handgun in Arizona, and although they were unable to find the actual weapon, they found unfired casings in Diane's home with extractor markings from the same gun that shot her children. So I don't know a lot about guns. If mm-hmm. the if they hadn't been fired, mm-hmm. does that mean that they were in the gun and taken out? What are extractor casings? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. Extractor markings. But I wonder if those were... Emily knows a little more about guns. I could be completely wrong, but to me, it seems like it was maybe loaded in the chamber, yeah, and then released. That's what I'm saying, but not like shot, but not shot, just unloaded. Okay, so that happening caused them to be able to tell it came from the same gun that the used casings. Yeah, that to that to me is like the only thing that would make sense. But I could be completely wrong. Completely right. That I mean, that's kind of what I thought. So I just wanted to get your expert opinion. <laughs> um, most damaging witnesses saw Diane's car driving very slowly toward the hospital at an estimated speed of five to seven miles per hour. Holy cow, that is with your dying, bleeding, crying yeah. children in the back seat, contradicting her claim that she drove to the hospital at a high speed after the shooting. Diane was arrested on February 28th, 1984 nine months after the shooting and charged with one count of murder and two counts each of attempted murder and criminal assault. Mm. 
Prosecutors argued that Diane Downs shot her children to be free of them so she could continue her affair with Knickerbocker, as she claimed that he let it be known that he did not want children in his life. Okay, ladies, because this is the second mom trying to kill her kids to get with a man. Mm -hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm. Like, holy shit. Kids way better than men. Trust. (laughs) Much of the case against her rested on the testimony of her surviving daughter, eight-year-old Christy, who once she recovered her ability to speak, yeah, it was pretty bad, described how her mother shot all three children while parked at the side of the road and then shot herself in the arm. Um, This was a big part of the book and movie, so I had to bring it up because I didn't really find it on any of the, like, Wikipedia or Murderpedia stuff. Yeah. Um, Christy recounted that the Duran Duran song Hungry Like the Wolf was playing. Do you Mm -hmm. recall? Does that make you remember this at all? Because this was, like, a big part of my childhood. Yeah. District Attorney Fred Hughey asked Christy if she remembered who shot her, and she replied simply, my mom. Prosecutors played Hungry Like the Wolf during the trial, mm-hmm. and Diane's reaction to the song bobbing her head and kind of like dancing along because she just loves that song, mm-hmm. even though it was the soundtrack to one of her children dying, uh, it had a big effect on the jurors. They said you could mark, you could like see the jurors like visibly cringe at her reaction. Wow. I mean, yeah. Um Diane Downs was convicted on all charges on June 17, 1984, and sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. She would have to serve 25 years before being considered for parole. Psychiatrists diagnosed her with narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders. I don't know what histrionic means. Let's look it up real Yeah, quick. let's look. Emily's going to look. Emily is like, if you've ever seen that, like, dorky picture that says Hacker Man, it's Emily. <laughs> um, overly theatrical or melodramatic in character style. Oh, fuck. That's me. Anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> Downs, Diane's two surviving children eventually went to live with the lead prosecutor on the case, Fred Hughey. Um, So they just, him and his wife became really close with the children and they couldn't believe the story of the mom. They were just like pissed, hmm. basically, and they were so close to it. He and his wife, Joanne, adopted the two surviving children in 1986. Prior to Diane's arrest, she became pregnant and gave birth to a girl whom she named Amy Elizabeth a month after her 1984 trial. Ten days before Down sentencing, um, Amy was seized by the state of Oregon and adopted by Chris and Jackie Babcock. In another one of her strange media appearances, Down spoke about the pregnancy, saying... I got pregnant because I miss Christy and I miss Danny and I miss Cheryl so much. She said, I'm never going to see Cheryl on earth again. And I just, you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect they give you. And they give me love. They give me satisfaction. They give me stability. They give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And that's gone. They took it from me, but children are so easy to conceive. Hold up. Hold the phone. Okay. A. Children are so easy to conceive. You don't, you can just get another one. The fir- A, the first thing, I had to remember what I was going to say. Yeah. The first part of that, you're never going to see that baby again. I don't care what you believe you, if you believe like heaven, hell, I don't care what you believe. H-E double hockey stick. She's never seeing that baby again. My goodness. Ever. Okay. I wish you could see Emily's face right in an now. Un- in an unearthly atmosphere, <clears throat> she has never seen that child again. Second. Straight to hell. Children are not replaceable. Yes, you can replace the feelings, but even then, that's not the same feeling that you would get. Like if I was your child. Right. Or if you were my child. 
You miss that child. You miss that child's feelings that they give you. Mm-hmm. Amelia's, Ivan's not going to give you the same feelings that Amelia's going to give 100%. you and vice versa. Right. C, there was something else in there. Yeah, the easy easy to conceive. Okay, tell that to all the people that have fertility right. Pro- right. fertility issues and struggles. And I left this part out. She She had a fourth child in there that she was a surrogate mother for someone. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So she obviously is aware that some people yeah. have trouble conceiving. People, some people cannot do that. Um, she is psychotic. Diane had picked someone on her postal route to seduce. Oh my God. Prior to the start of her trial because she wanted to get pregnant by this person. She calculated that this would win her sympathy in her trial. I mean, obviously if she's pregnant, she loves kids, right? Right. Right. Is that, is it that easy? I mean, thank goodness I am in a relationship, a Go serious pick relationship, somebody. but like just being like, mm, you know what? I encounter this person every day on my mail route. I'm going to yeah. fuck him and get pregnant. Basically. What in the world? God. Uh, Diane Downs was incarcerated at the Oregon Women's Correctional Center in Salem on July 11th, 1987. She escaped. Guess where she was found? Stop. <laughs> in a hotel room within two weeks, police had tracked her down, uh, she was with another inmate's husband in a hotel room just blocks from the prison and oh was God. recaptured on July 21st. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> How did they escape? Like, did she just, like, walk out or was it, like— I don't remember the okay. escape. Um, it was, like, a, a tricky, sneaky thing. Like, I think it was a opportunity. Like a like a prison break type of yeah. situation. Yeah. Not like a— Right. Like a orange is the new black escape con- Right. It was like a escape of opportunity is what I re- is what I think I recall. But like huh. I said, I've done a lot of these baby killers. And lately. then she's sleeping with an, another inmate's another husband. Another inmate's husband. She shacks up with him in a hotel room for like a week and a half. Oh my gosh, how does that happen? They said that when they show up to arrest her at the hotel room, she comes out wearing that guy's like boxer shorts and t-shirt. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Diane, get oh it. Oh my God. She received an additional five-year sentence for the escape. After her recapture, Diane was transferred to the New Jersey Department of Corrections Clinton Correctional Facility for women at Hughie's request. Um, the Salem prison was 66 miles from his home in Springfield, Springfield, and during her 10 days, you know, out, he worried that she would try to come and mm-hmm. do something to the kids, see the kids. Yeah, that is, um, that's close. Yeah, Despite security upgrades at the women's facility after the escape, so obviously it was just like lax security, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, state officials accepted Hughie's argument that the risk of harm to Christy and Danny, if she escaped again, remained too great, and um, Good for them. they moved her to a facility in California. Author Ann Rule wrote the book Small Sacrifices in 1987, detailing Down's life and murder trial. They mentioned that um, she was abused by her father. Her father and mother say that that's not the case. And I think Diane actually took it back later. It was mm-hmm. just like trying to get out of. Yeah. yeah. Um, the book documents accounts by friends, acquaintances, neighbors, and her surviving daughter, Christy, who questioned the quality of her parenting. You think? <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, and a made for TV movie also under the same title, Small Sacrifices, starring Farrah Fawcett. As Diane Downs aired on ABC in 1989, I was eight or nine years old. 
Who the fuck let me watch this, you guys? Right? Who was paying attention <laughs> Nobody, to nine-year-old apparently. Patra? <laughs> Diane Downs remains in prison in California. She was denied parole in 2008 and continues to proclaim her innocence. Mm-hmm. Hey. Hungry like the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> that was a roller coaster. I mean, I can see so many, like, scenes from that made-for-TV movie right now in my head. Yeah. Yeah. There, Farrah Fawcett was also in a made-for-TV movie called The Burning Bed, where she kills her husband. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll do that one. Sets him on fire in the bed. In the bed. My goodness. It's. I think I was. I. She seems so white trashy, and like I feel like somebody in my family could totally do that. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's I why do. I liked it so much. The trash factor. The trash. The trash factor. <laughs> There's your title. Oh my god. I love I love when it just comes to me and I don't have to search for it. I do too. I really do. <laughs> it's like, oh yes, perfect. Um, okay, so my story is real long today. I'm so glad because mine was like it four is, pages double spaced, and I was like, whew, probably one like today. Yeah. It is probably one of the most prolific serial killers that we know yeah, of. It's a good um, one. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about, and I need to do it before I forget about it real quick. Um say it. Where did where did they post it? It's so quiet. I know. I'm sorry. Um, I don't understand. Sometimes I don't understand how this stuff works. To be honest with you, technology. You. That's not true. I really want to find it because I want to say who did. I knew I sort of screen grabbed it. Um. Okay. So as <laughs> essentially this one person, mm-hmm. um, this woman. Left us a review somewhere. I don't remember where it was. Oh, no. Left us a review and said, basically said that she was really enjoying catching up. And she was on the episode where we asked how many serial killers are active because we didn't think that there were that many yeah. that were active. And she said she shared a post, like a go- like a Google search, which, I mean, obviously we could have done. But right. who, who would have thought about that? Well, we like interaction. But it's like. 20, anywhere between 25 and 50 are active, like, in the United States at all times or something like that. It's that seems like, like too much. I know. That's what I said. I said, I don't like that number. That's too high. Yeah, no. <laughs> it seems like one could be near me. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is one of the most prolific serial killers ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're not into true crime, you know who this is. So I want to talk today about Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> now okay (laughs) originally i started out with 23 pages of notes she was like shuffling a deck of cards over here this morning (laughs) yeah and to be honest i didn't read through all of them i copied and pasted a lot from murderpedia Mm -hmm. and um an article by troy taylor on prairieghost.com so okay there's a lot here and if i mess anything up you know the spiel if i mess it up i'm sorry yeah basically um and i when she's mentioned that this was probably who she's gonna do i was like have you read devil in the white city and she was like no yeah i have it on my audiobooks to listen to thanks for reminding me it's been a long time since i've read it i mean since (coughs) it like came out yeah yeah (coughs) oh my god are you okay yeah just a little tickle in my throat pause for cpr (coughs) i fixed her (laughs) (laughs) all right so bear with me here okay um dr henry howard holmes was born in gilmanton new hampshire on may 16th 1861 as herman webster mudgett he was the son of levi horton mudgett and is it theo theodate theodati can i see there ish 
Oh, I don't know. Theodati. Theodati, Theodati, Theodate, Theodate. Theo Day. Thea for short. Yeah. Thea sounds like a great name, though. Um, So he was the son of Levi and his mother. Thea, Thea Dottie, Paige Price, whatever. Son of his parents. Um, Yeah. <laughs> he was born by a mom and a dad. Oh, my God. Me too. Uh, Levi was a strict disciplinarian and was especially abusive after he'd been drinking, which was often... If Mudgett or his brother or sister were bad, their strict Methodist parents sent them to the attic for a full day without speaking or eating. Oh. Yeah. You got to eat. Yeah. Damn. Um, Holmes claimed he was often bullied as a child as well. He said that as a child, he had been forced by other students to view and touch a human skeleton after they found out about his fear about, uh, after they found out about his fear of the local doctor's office. The bullies had initially brought him there to scare him, but instead he was just fascinated by it. Mm. Uh, he was curiously detached from the start. He'd attack animals in the woods and dissect them while they were still alive. Oh, I don't like no, that. no, no. And he had no friends. The one he did have died while they were playing. Despite his odd upbringing, the distance he kept from other children, he grew into an imposing young man. He was polished, bright, and handsome and was good at making people feel special. Oh, Holmes graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School in 1884. While enrolled, he stole bodies from the school laboratory, would take out insurance policies on them, disfigure their corpses, and claim that they had accidentally been killed so he could collect the insurance money. Hey, smart. I mean, yeah. I want to do that. (laughs) I want to do that and not get caught. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) After graduating, he moved to Chicago to practice pharmacy... After graduating, he moved to Chicago to become a pharmacist. He also began to engage in a number of shady businesses, real estate, and promotional deals under the name H.H. Holmes. Mm -hmm. On July 8th, 1878, Holmes married Clara A. Levering of Alton, New Hampshire. On January 28th, 1887, still married to Clara, he married Murda Z. Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. (laughs) He and Murda had a daughter named Lucy the Theodati name again, Lucy Holmes. Theodati sounds right. Yeah. Theodati. Sure. Um, Lucy Holmes, born July 4th, um, Jesus, July 4th, 1889 in Inglewood, Illinois. The family of three resided in Wilmot, an upscale Chicago suburb, although Holmes spent most of his time in the city tending to business. He filed a petition for divorce from his first wife after marrying his second, but the divorce was never finalized. So then he married his third wife, Georgiana Yoke. I mean, I'm not, I'm sick of waiting around too, damn. <laughs> On January 9th, 1894, and had a relationship also with Julia Smith, the wife of Ned Connor, a one-time employee who later fled Chicago. Unfortunately, Julia is going to appear later on in this story and not in a positive way. So here starts the Troy Taylor PrairieGhost.com article. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after Holmes married Myrtle, no, Myrta. Dude, Troy Taylor, get your facts right. Yeah, seriously. I'm not, that's the fifth word. Um, He began working in a drugstore in the Inglewood neighborhood at the corner of 63rd and Wallace Street. The corner was owned. This is the corner. <laughs> I'm telling you. <ya. laughs> the it's store. Been a long week. The store was owned by Mrs. Holden. Um, she was an older lady who was happy to have him take over most of the. Res- no, okay. I, I don't okay. know how you much I trust over? this. I, I don't know how much I trust this anymore. Oh no. Okay, so the store was owned by Mrs. Holden and Mr. Holden. Mr. Holden was sick, so Mrs. Holden was running the store, and Holmes came in and basically. Took over and right. like forced himself, like forced her to like 
give up mm-hmm. that stuff and then eventually conned her into letting him buy the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1887, she just suddenly vanished. Yeah. And um, just before he had announced that he was purchasing the store, just prior to her, quote, moving out west, she didn't leave a forward address, mm-hmm. you know, because... He killed her. Right. But she said, she, he said that she went out to California. And then when people started asking, like, he was like, she's, she loved it so much. She just mm. decided to stay out there, especially because Mr. Like Mr. Holden had passed away. And uh, you know what? That kind of shit happens. It does. It, yeah. It, it honestly, it really does. So here we go. In, here 18, we go. in 1889, Holmes began a new era in his criminal life. After a short trip to Indiana, he returned to Chicago and purchased an empty lot across the street from the drugstore. He had plans to build a huge house on the property, and work was almost started immediately. His trip to Indiana had been profitable, and he had used the journey to pull off an insurance scheme with the help of an accomplice named Benjamin P- Pietzel. Mm-hmm. The Confederate later went to jail as a result of the swindle. Oh, my God. <laughs> as a result of the swindle? <laughs> yeah, Pietzel, Pietzel went to jail as a result of... The scheme and Holmes didn't get punished. Um, <laughs> good You're Lord. adorable. I should have really read this. Um, 23 pages back to back is a lot. Though. It is a lot. Okay. Holmes continued to operate the drugstore, which he also added a jewelry counter. In, eight, in 1890, he hired Ned Connor of Davenport, Iowa, as a watchmaker and a jeweler. The young man arrived in the city with the company of his wife, Julia, and their daughter, Pearl. The family moved into a small apartment above the store, and soon Julia managed to capture capture the interests of Holmes. He soon fired his bookkeeper and hired Julia to take the man's place. Not not long after, Connor began to suspect that Holmes was carrying was having an affair with his wife, and he was right. Luckily for him, he decided to cut his losses, abandoned and fa- abandoned his family, and went to work for another shop downtown. Frick, like. I mean, downtown, you didn't even, like, move states. You're like, no, I'm going to move across the street and never speak to you again. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Now that Holmes had Julia to himself, he took out out large insurance policies on the woman um, and her daughter. Oof. Naming himself as a beneficiary. Nope. Years later, it came to be suspected that Julia became a willing participant in many of Holmes' schemes and swindles. Where he incorporated the business, the jewelry business in August of 1890, he listed Julia along with her friend Kate Durkee as directors. Mm. By this time, much of Holmes' ill-gotten gains, Jesus fucking Christ, Ill. um, had been funneled into the construction of his home across the street. It would be later dubbed the Murder Castle, and it would eventually earn, and it would certainly earn its nickname. The building was three stories high and built from brick. There were over 60 rooms in the structure and 51 doors that were cut oddly into various walls. Uh, Holmes acted as his own architect for the place, and he personally supervised the numerous construction crews, all of whom were quickly hired and fired. Most likely, um, oh, obviously he didn't want them to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. In addition to the eccentric general design, the house was also fitted with trap doors, hidden staircases, secret passages, rooms without windows, chutes that led into the basement, and a staircase that opened out over a steep drop to the alley behind the house. Okay, but how much do you want a house that has a chute that just goes straight to the basement? Yeah. Like someone is getting on your fucking nerves. Bam, basement. If this wasn't designed to take people's lives, like this would be so cool. It'd just be like a big fun house. Yeah. There's a movie out there, and I don't know where I saw it. Maybe I dreamt it, which is also very possible. Oh, okay. But I'm pretty sure there's a movie out there, and I'm sure I watched it on Netflix or something. But 
it's like this crazy, okay, God. Um, It's like this big house, but it's always changing. And like you go into rooms and nobody's going to know what I'm talking about. And I'm never going to find it. Please tell me the story. But you go into rooms and like each room is different. And it's like supposed to be like this big maze and like you get lost. And I think it's kind of like this situation where like Mm -hmm. if you don't make it out in a certain time, like you're going to die. So it's a scary movie. Yeah, I think so. If you know what it is, let me know. But it's like, like they always it's. Like, it's always changing, and, like, you think you go back into the Mm -hmm. room that you just came in, and it's a completely different room, and it's, like, supposed to. I want to watch it again, and I don't know if it actually exists. (laughs) (laughs) Moral of the story, and this kind of just reminded me of it. My God. All right. All right. The first floor of the building contains stores and shops, while the upper floors um, could be used for spacious living quarters. Homes also had an office on the second floor, but most of the rooms were to be used for guests. Guests that would never be seen again. Oh, fuck. Evidence would later be found to show that Holmes used some of the rooms as, quote, unfic- uh, no, used some of the rooms as asphyxiation chambers where his victims were suffocated with gas. Damn. Other chambers were lined with iron plates and had blowtorch-like devices fitted into the walls. The In the basement, Holmes, Holmes installed a dissecting table and maintained his own crematory. There was, did I pronounce that right? Crematory, okay, yeah. Okay, that just didn't sound right in my head. There was also an acid vat and pits lined with quicklime where bodies would be conveniently disposed of. Acid bath. I know. That's a killer band. (laughs) (laughs) All of his prison rooms were fitted with alarms that buzzed in Holmes' quarters if a victim attempted to escape. (gasps) Wee! Uh-oh. It has come to be believed that many of his victims were held captive for months before their deaths. Oh, God. The castle was completed in 1891, and soon after, Holmes announced the plan— that he wanted to rent out some of the rooms to tourists who would be arriving in mass for the upcoming Columbian Exposition. Uh, it is surmised that many of these tourists never returned home after the fair, but no one knows for sure. Mm. This was not Holmes' only method of procuring victims, however. A large number of his female victims came through false classified ads that he placed in small-town newspapers that offered jobs to young ladies. When the ads, when the ads were answered... He would describe several jobs in detail and explain that the woman would have her choice of the positions at the time of the interview. When accepted, she would then be instructed to pack her things, withdraw all of her money from the bank because she would need funds to get started. So he is like, I've got a great job for you. Mm -hmm. And he's not even sure which one you want. So pick from these great jobs. Yeah. Bring all your money. And they're like, oh, my God, this is the best thing. Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go live here. I'm going to be set up. I'm going to get to do what I want. Let's just leave this place, my little small town. No, don't do it. Death. The acid. (laughs) (laughs) The applicants were also instructed to keep the location and the name of his company a closely guarded secret. He told them that he had devious competitors who would use any information possible to steal his clients. When the applicant arrived and Holmes was convinced that she had told no one of her destination, she would then become his prisoner. Oof. An advertisement for lodging during the fair was not only the was not the only method that Holmes uses. I obviously mm. did that twice. Just kidding. Cut that out. Um, Holmes also placed newspaper ads for marriage as well, describing himself as a wealthy businessman who is searching for a suitable wife, even though he already had four. Fuck. <laughs> Those who answered this ad would get a similar story to the job offer. He would then torture the women to learn the whereabouts of any valuables they may have. The young ladies would then remain his prisoner until he decided to dispose of them. Man, uh, I don't have any valuables. I wouldn't have anything to give up. I know. I'd have to lie. I'd be like, there. 
in China. My China's in China. Head over to China. That's d- <laughs> that, that gives me at least <laughs> like six days to escape. Yeah. And back then it was more than six days. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. That was too much. Emily, that was too much brain power. That's fine. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's been a long week. Did the, we mention that? The facial expressions we both just made at each other were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, Holmes was able to keep his murder operation a secret for four years. In a he, big old mansion in the middle of town. Yeah, like this. Oh, Jesus. He slaughtered an unknown number of people, mostly women in the castle. He would later confess to 28 murders, although the actual number of victims is believed to be much higher. In 1893, Holmes met a young woman named Minnie Williams. He told her that his name was Harry Gordon and that he was a wealthy inventor. Holmes' interest in her had been piqued when he learned that she was the heir to a Texas real estate fortune. She was in Chicago working as an instructor for a private school. It wasn't long before she and Holmes were engaged to be married. This was a turn in events that did not make Julia Connor happy. Oh, goodness. Still involved, still working at the store. Oh, yeah. Not long after his engagement became official, both Julia and Pearl disappeared. Ooh. When Ned Connor later inquired about, uh, later asked about them, Holmes explained that they had moved to Michigan. In his confession, he admitted that Julia had died during a bungled abortion that he had performed on her. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then he had also poisoned Pearl. He later admitted that he murdered the woman and her child because of her jealous feelings toward Minnie Williams. But I would have gotten rid of her anyway, he said. I was tired of her. (sighs) Minnie Williams lived at the castle for more than a year and knew more about Holmes' crimes than any other person. Police investigators would state that there is no way she could not have had guilty knowledge about many of the murders. Beside being ultimately responsible for the deaths of Julia and Pearl Connor, Minnie was also believed to have instigated the murder of Emily Van Tassel, a young lady who lived on Roby Street. She was only 17 and worked at a candy store on the first floor of the castle. There's no indication of what caused her to catch the eye of Holmes, but she just but she vanished just one month after his offer of employment. Uh-huh. Minnie also knew about the murder of Emmeline Seagrind a beautiful young woman who worked as a stenographer at the Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois. Ben Pietzel went there to take a drunkenness cure. What? So was he going to get a cup of coffee, a <laughs> cup of black coffee and like some bread? What is a drunkenness cure? Did he have a hangover? <laughs> Did he need a Bloody Mary and a runny egg? I mean, I guess. What the hell? Um, it, So Ben returned and told Holmes of the girl's beauty when he returned to Chicago. Holmes then contacted her and offered her a large salary to work for him in Chicago. She accepted and came to the castle only to never leave it. How come nobody says, hey, I heard you're cute. You want to come make a whole bunch of money to me? I know. I wouldn't even care if I got murdered after because I'd be like on top of the world. I'd be like, fuck yeah. Yeah, I know. (laughs) God. Um, Emmeline became homesick after a few weeks in Chicago and had planned to marry an Indiana man named Robert E. Phelps and she was missing him and her family. Mm. Holmes later confessed that he locked the girl in one of his soundproof rooms and raped her. He stated that he killed her because Minnie Williams objected to his lusting after the young, attractive woman. Sometime later, Robert Phelps made the mistake of dropping by to inquire after her at the castle. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that was the last time that he was ever reported alive. Look, y'all, don't stop by. Don't check on anything. I'm upset. (laughs) Holmes described a stretching experiment with which he used to kill Phelps. Always uh, curious about the punishment a human body could withstand. Holmes often used a dissecting table on live victims. 
He invented a rack-like device that would literally stretch a person to a breaking point. No, thank you, dude. Ugh. Fuck. Maybe this movie that I was thinking of, like, was based off, like, I'm pretty, I, yeah, that's I think what it I might have been based off of this. Um, In April of 1893, Minnie's property in Texas was, <laughs> was deeded to a man. That just doesn't sound Deeded? Right. Yeah. Was given to a man. <laughs> Benton T. Lyman, who was in reality Ben Pietzel. Oh, my God. Um, hey, my name's Shannon. <laughs> I'm just going to change my damn name. Yeah, I'm just going to switch it. Switch it up. Jesus. Uh, later that same year, Minnie's brother was killed in a mining accident in Colorado, which is said to have been arranged by Holmes. As a... As with Julia, Holmes also managed to get Minnie to go along with his deadly schemes, although in Minnie's case, it was even easier to manage her complicity. Apparently, in June of 1893, Minnie had accidentally killed her sister, Nanny, during a heated argument. She, Oh, my God. Yeah. She had, hit the, she had hit Nanny over the head with a chair, and she died. Holmes had protected Minnie by dropping the body into Lake Michigan. Some believe Minnie had not killed her sister at all, but it merely stunned her with a chair. It had been Holmes, they say, who finished the woman off and gained himself yet another accomplice. I mean, <sighs> holy shit. It's a mess. A short time later, Holmes and Minnie traveled to Denver in the company of another young woman, Georgiana Yoke, um, which I mentioned earlier for marrying Holmes. Um, it was just a repeat. Georgiana had come to Chicago from Indiana with a tarnished reputation. She had applied for a job at the castle. Holmes told her her name was Henry Howard, and... Minnie was his cousin. On January 17, 1984, Holmes and Georgiana were married at Vendome, Vendome Hotel in Denver with Minnie as their witness. After that, the wedding party traveled to Texas, which was like literally the three of them, Georgiana, Minnie, and Holmes. Oh, my gosh. Um, they traveled to How Texas. celebratory. Yeah, where they claimed Minnie's property and arranged a horse swindle. I don't know what a horse swindle is. A horse swindle? Oh, they stealing right. horses? Yeah. Uh... Holmes purchased several railroad cards of horses with counterfeit banknotes and signed papers as O.C. Pratt. The horses were then shipped to St. Louis and sold. Holmes made off with a fortune, um, but this would later come back and bite him in the ass. Of course. The threesome returned to Chicago, and their return marked the last time that Minnie was ever seen alive. Although her body was never found, it's believed to have joined the other victims in the acid vat in the basement. Holmes continued to kill, claiming several victims. One of them was Emily. I already wrote read that jesus christ this guy is not a good article writer i hate him i'm pissed he's making it very hard for me i'm sorry it's not, i mean i could have actually read through this and like you know drafted no. it like i usually do no. but there's a lot and hold on can i interrupt really yeah. quick interrupt someone on my facebook just said in search of places that hire felons with face tats i think um Holmes here would be down for that. Yeah. <laughs> Insert. Wow. In search what? of places that hire felons with face tats. Me too. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Like, what did they do? I don't know. Like, what felony crime did they commit? Something with drugs. You know. You know yeah. it. Then anyway. that's fine. I'll hire him. Yeah. Face tats. If they murdered somebody, that's probably a We work in radio. Nobody cares what our faces look like. Fuck, no, they don't. Thank uh, God. Like, kind well, of kind of. Only like when, in the summertime when we're out. <laughs> when they let when they let us out. When they let us out. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry for interrupting. I was just like, no, that's that I would have forgotten a worthy interruption. <clears throat> okay, face tats, face tats, Hook felony us up. face tats. If you know any place that's hiring a felon with face tats, at us, at us, off air with EP. 
in July of 1894. It's hard. It's so hard. Holmes was arrested for the first time. It was not for murder, but for one of his schemes, the the horse thing. For stealing horses? Yeah. So he got arrested in July of 1894 for stealing horses. Uh, Georgiana bailed him out, but while he was in jail, he struck up a conversation with a convicted train robber named Marion Hedgepeth, who was serving a 25-year sentence. Fuck. That entire sentence just sounds so fake. I know. (laughs) Holmes had concocted a plan to... uh, I'm trying to think of a word to replace this. Holmes had concocted a plan to basically trick an insurance company out of $20,000 by placing a po- by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his own death. Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of the lawyer who could be trusted. Uh, he was directed to Colonel Jephthah Howe, oh my the God. brother of a public defender, and Howe found Holmes' plan to be brilliant. I real quick want to know yeah, what $20,000 in 1894 is compared to today. All of their names remind me of just like fake movies where there's like 1920s gangsters running around with suspenders on. Yes. Little bowler hats. Seriously. That's all I can think of. $20,000. So that $20,000 insurance policy is almost $600,000 today. Yeah. So let's that do means it. that $500 commission is almost $15,000 today. Mm. So that's pretty, I mean, that's a pretty significant job. Yeah. Um, Holmes, let's do that. Yeah, let's, <laughs> I mean, fuck. Holmes then took a cadaver to a seaside resort in Rhode Island and burned it, disfiguring the head, dumping it on the beach. He then shaved his beard and altered his appearance and returned to the hotel, registering under another name and inquiring about his friend, Holmes. When the body was discovered on the beach, he identified it as H.H. Holmes and presented an insurance policy for $20,000. The insurance company suspected fraud, though, and refused to pay. Holmes returned to Chicago oh without God. pressing the claim and began concocting a new version of the same scheme. A month, a month later, Holmes held a conference with Ben Pietzel and Jeb Thahau, and his new plan was put into action. Pietzel went to Philadelphia with his wife, Carrie, and opened a shop for buying and selling patents under the name of B.F. Perry. Uh, Big fucking Perry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Everybody's name is so insane. I know. Holmes then took out an insurance policy on his life. The plan was for Piazel to drink a potion that would knock him unconscious. Then Holmes would apply makeup to his face to make it look as though he had been been severely burned. A witness would then summon an ambulance, and while they were gone, Holmes would put a corpse in place of the shopkeeper. The insurance company would be told that he had died. Piazel would then receive a portion of the money in exchange for his role— and he would soon learn, as many others had, that Holmes couldn't be trusted. What? The <laughs> <laughs> the accident took place on the morning of September 4th when neighbors heard a loud explosion from the patent office. A carpenter named Eugene Smith, thank you for having a normal name, Eugene My Smith, God. came to the office for a short time later and found the door locked and the building dark. For some reason, he became concerned and summoned a police officer to the scene. They broke open the door and found a badly burned man on the floor. The death was quickly ruled an accident, and the body was taken to the morgue. After 11 days, no one showed up to claim it, so the corpse was buried in the local potter's field. Days later, the police learned that the man, that the dead man had come, had come to Philadelphia from St. Louis, and the police of that city were asked to search for relatives. Within days, attorney Jeff the Howe filed a claim with the insurance company on behalf of Carrie Pietzel and collected the money. He kept 2500 and Holmes took the remainder. He later gave 500 to Mrs. Pietzel, but then took it back, explaining that he would invest it for her. Oh, my God. 
The claim was paid out and invested into my wallet. Oh! <laughs> the claim was paid without hesitation, and everyone got their share of the money except for Ben Pietzel and Marion Hedgepeth. Holmes never bothered to, cap- to contact the train robber again. A slight... <laughs> oh, God, ignore that part. Uh, he- he's just like, meh. No, no thanks. I mean, I guess... If you don't have to, If you don't have to, you're it. in 1890s. You don't... Really, how fine. is he going to find you? Uh, he brooded over this a while and decided to turn Holmes in. He explained a scheme to a St. Louis policeman named Major Lawrence Harrigan, who turned who notified an insurance investigator, W.E. Gary. He then passed along the information to Frank P. Geyer, a Pinkerton agent, who immediately began an investigation. Ben Pietzel never received his share of the money either, but even if he had, he wouldn't have been able to spend it. Um, What Holmes had not told anyone that the body discovered in the patent office was not a cleverly disguised corpse, but Ben Pietzel himself. (laughs) Rather than split the money again, Holmes had killed his accomplice and then burned him so that he would be difficult to recognize. My God. Holmes kept Mm. this part of the plan a secret as he and Georgina were now traveling with Carrie Pietzel and her three children. My God. What in the hell? Carrie believed that her husband was hiding out in New York. The group was last seen in Cincinnati and then in Indianapolis on <gasps> October 1st. Dun, 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 dun. Carrie was then sent east and the children were left in the care of Holmes and Georgina. Bad idea. Real bad. Holmes made arrangement for Carrie to meet him in Detroit where he assured her that her husband was now hiding. He mm. arrived in Detroit several days after the appoint several days before the appointed time and put the three children into a boarding house. He then went to Indiana and returned with Georgina and installed her in a second boarding house. And installed her in a second boarding house. Oh, no. Oh, no. When Carrie arrived, she was lodged in yet another establishment. When Then he began moving around the country, apparently aware that the Pinkerton detective was on his trail. The journey lasted for almost two months, but on November 17, 1894, Holmes turned up alone in Boston and was arrested and sent to Philadelphia. As, as fate would have it, he wasn't arrested for insurance fraud, but for the horse thing. My goodness. In Texas. He was given the choice of being returned to Texas and being hanged as a horse thief, or he could confess to the insurance scheme that had led to the death of Ben Pietzel. He chose the insurance fraud and was sent to Philadelphia. On the way there, Holmes offered his guard $500 if the man would allow him to be hypnotized. Uh, he said no. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> God. The, the entire insurance scheme was now completely unraveling. A week later, Georgiana, Georgiana was located at her parents' home in Indiana. Carrie Pietzel was found in Burlington, Vermont, where Holmes had rented a small house for her to live while she awaited the arrival of her family. Holmes had lived at the house with her for several days, but had left angry when she questioned him about a hole that he was digging in the backyard. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude. Um, obviously the police think that he was digging her grave. My goodness. But he chose not to kill her for whatever reason. Mrs. Pietzel was arrested and taken to Philadelphia, but was released. No charges were ever brought against her. Okay. Uh, Detective Geyer was slowly starting to uncover the dark secrets of Henry Howard Holmes. He realized, um, that's it. (laughs) He was beginning to sift through the many lies and identities of Holmes, hoping to find clues as to the fates of the Pietzel children. At this point, he had no idea about all the other victims. Holmes swore that Minnie Williams had taken her children with her to London, Lord. where she planned to open a massage parlor, but Geyer was sure that he's lying. In June of, ni- June of 1895, Holmes entered a guilty plea for a single count of insurance, fl- insurance fraud, but Geyer then expanded his investigation. Throughout the questioning, Holmes refused to reveal any other explanation for what had become of Carrie's three children, Howard, Nellie, and, Howard, Nellie, and Alice. 
bearing the worst detective, <laughs> bearing the worst <laughs> detective Geyer set out to try and discover their fate and his fears soon came to realization. In Chicago, Geyer learned that all of Holmes' mail had been forwarded every day to Gilmanton, New York. It had been sent to Detroit, from Detroit to Toronto, from Toronto to Cincinnati, Cincinnati to Indianapolis, and then on from there. He followed Holmes' trail for eight months through the Midwest and Canada, stopping in each city to investigate the house that he had been renting while residing there. In Detroit, a house that Holmes had rented was still vacant, and a large hole was found to have been dug in the cellar floor. Um, it was empty. <laughs> <laughs> it was empty. In Toronto, the pink... In Toronto, Pinkerton searched for eight days where he found the cottage at number 16 Vincent Street that had been rented to a man fitting Holmes' description. The man had been traveling with two little girls. Holmes borrowed a shovel shovel from a neighbor, which he claimed he wanted to use to dig a hole to store potatoes in. Bury a cat. (laughs) (laughs) What's in the bag? Oh, my God. (laughs) Potatoes. Geyer (laughs) Geyer borrowed the same spade and when digging in the same location found the bodies of Nellie and Alice Pietzel several feet under the earth. Mm. In an upstairs bathroom, he found a large trunk that had a piece of rubber tubing leading to it from a gas pipe. He had told the girls that he wanted to play hide-and-seek with them, trick them into climbing the trunk, and then asphyxiated them. The shocking discovery made Geyer work even harder to find what had become Howard Pietzel. When questioning the neighbors, he learned that the Pietzel girls had told him that they had a brother who was living in Indianapolis. With a small clue, Geyer went to Indiana and painstakingly searched, searched 900 houses for any clue of homes. Finally, wow. in the suburb of Irvington, hey. huh, he found a house that Holmes had rented for a week. The place had been empty since Holmes' occupancy and the kitchen stove. In the kitchen stove, Geyer found the charred remains of Howard. I don't like this. Goodness. Now the door was open for Geyer and Chicago detectives to search Holmes' residence in the Windy City. Geyer was sure that the remaining answers that he was seeking could be found inside the castle. My ears popping. Oh, no. That's weird. He entered the place with several police officers, and neither Geyer nor the veteran investigators would ever forget what they found there. <laughs> Sorry, this guy. Um, detectives devoted several weeks to searching and making a floor plan of the castle. The bottom floor had been used by Holmes himself as a drugstore, candy store, restaurant, and jewelry store. The third floor had been divided into small apartments and guest rooms, apparently, that had never been used. Yikes. Do you need to say something? Mm-mm. Oh, you just leaned forward like you were getting ready to say something. I was just checking. No, I'm sorry. I'm just, li- I'm, I'm leaning forward with interest. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> God. <laughs> the second floor, however proved to be a labyrinth of narrow winding passages with doors that opened to brick walls, hidden stairways, cleverly concealed doors, blind hallways, secret panels, hidden passages, and a clandestine vault that was only a, only big enough for a person to stand in. Mm. The room was alleged to be a homemade gas chamber equipped with a chute that would carry a body directly into the basement. The investigator suddenly realized that the implications of the iron-plated chamber when they found the single scuffed mark of a footprint on the inside of the door It was a small print that had been made by a woman who had attempted to escape the grim fate of the tiny room. In addition to all of the bizarre additions to the floor, the second level also held 35 guest rooms. Half of them were fitted as ordinary sleeping sleeping chambers, but there were indications that they had been occupied by various women who worked for Holmes, by tenants during the fair, or by the luckless females Holmes had seduced while waiting for an opportunity to kill them. I want to—I don't understand. Like, I can't—I— to be honest, I haven't seen any pictures or whatever, but mm-hmm. when it said that the murder castle is just like, it's like, expand, it's three stories and expanding like the, the size of a block. Mm-hmm. 
the fact that there's 35 rooms on the second floor alone mm-hmm. like blows my mind like obviously it's way bigger than like you initially think it is right like I'm sitting here thinking like man we could use a couple of those rooms in my apartment right um I wonder if there are pictures that we can see I'm sure there are several of the other rooms were without windows and or could be made airtight by closing the doors check oh, that geez, out that is yeah. ginormous you know what's funny is the last thing I searched that's really pretty, it, though. I know. I it gave there. me, like, a pop-up, like, maybe you want to look for this, and it was the East Coast, West Coast wrap. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's, like, insane. Yeah. That'd be, like I said earlier, if it wasn't used for murder, that'd be so cool. It would be so cool, even if it was used for murder. I mean, even if it was. I would so like to go in there. <sighs> my daughter. I sent a text checking on my children, mm-hmm. even though they're... 16 and 12, I like to check on them. Yeah. They're home for the day. I said, doing all right over there. The response, nah, we're dead. Me, bummer, her, yeah, we got dysentery. <sighs> Where's H.H. H. Holmes when you need him, I ask you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Okay, good. <laughs> um, 35 guest rooms. Half of them, nope, read that one too. Several of the other rooms read that already. Others were lined with the sh- with sheet iron and a best and asbestos with scorch marks on the wall, fitted with trap doors that led to smaller rooms beneath. Mm. Or we or were equipped with lethal gas, lethal gas jets. I'm equipped with lethal gas. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> that could be used to suffocate or burn <laughs> the unsuspecting occupants. This floor also contained Holmes' private apartment, consisting of a bedroom, a bath, and two small chambers that were used as offices. The apartment was located at the front of the building, out, looking out over 63rd Street. In the floor of the bathroom, concealed under a heavy rug, the police found a trap door and a stairway that descended to a room about eight, squee- eight feet square. <laughs> was that eight squeet fair? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Two doors led off this chamber, one to a stairway that exited out onto a street, and the other giving access to the chute that led down to the basement. The chamber of horrors in the basement stunned the detectives even further. Here, um... Here they found Holmes' blood-spattered dissecting table, his macabre laboratory of torture devices, sharpened instruments, and various jars of poison. They also found the acid vat and the crematorium, which still contained ashen portions of bone that had not been burned in the Mm. intense heat. The search of the ashes had also revealed a watch that had belonged to Minnie Williams, some buttons from a dress, and several charred tin-type photographs. I don't know what a tin-type photograph is. Obviously, an old-time photograph. Yeah, it's like on a piece of tin, <clears throat> like stamped in. Interesting. You're so smart. About old shit. <laughs> <laughs> Under the staircase, Geyer had also found a ball made of women's hair that had been carefully wrapped in cloth. Oh, I don't like Ooh. that. Ooh. Burned in the floor, the police had found a huge vat of corrosive acid and two quick-lime pits, which were capable of devouring an entire body in a matter of hours. A loose pile of quicklime was also discovered in a small room that had been built into the corner. The naked footprint of a woman is was found embedded in the pile. Mm. Dozens of human bones and several pieces of jewelry were found and could be traced to Holmes' mistresses. A wood-burning stove in the center of the basement contained scraps of cloth, and Ned Connor was summoned by the castle to identify a bloody dress that had belonged to Julia. Oh, my gosh. In a hole in the middle of the <laughs> Like, why would you take him there? Right. In the hole, in a hole in the middle of the floor, more bones were found. After being examined by a physician, they were believed to be the bones of a small child between the ages of six and eight. 
the fate of Pearl Connor was no longer in question. On July 20th, some city workers began excavating the cellar and started to tunnel underneath 63rd Street. The, sm the hazy smell of gas hung in the air as the men tore away one wall. They discovered a large tank or metal-lined chamber. As soon as they broke through, the basement was filled with a stench of death, driving the crew back. Mm. Noting the metal lining of the tank, they sent for a plumber, and he struck a match to peer inside of it. Oh, my gosh. What? Then the tank exploded, obviously. Oh, my God. Shock. Shaking the building and sending flames into the basement. The men were buried in piles of debris, but no one was seriously injured. Wow. That surprised me. Yeah. Uh, the tank was lined with wood and metal and was 14 feet long. But thanks to the explosion, no one will ever know what it was used for. The only clue in the room was a small box that was found in its center. When it was opened by Fire Marshal James Kenyon, an evil-smelling vapor rushed out. The gathered men ran, except for Kenyon, who was overpowered by the stench. According to the New York World, he was dragged out and carried upstairs and for two hours acted like one demented. What I don't like hell? that. I don't oh like that at God. all. <laughs> I just got chills from Ooh, that one. Yeah, I don't like that one. Following the, following the excavation, the discovery of, and cataloging of Holmes' potential victims, the murder castle sat empty for several months. Not surprisingly, it drew onlookers and curiosity seekers from all over the city. Obviously. The newspapers were not yet filled with stories and illustrations. The newspapers weren't filled with stories and illustrations about Holmes' devious crimes, but rumors had quickly spread about what had been discovered there. The people of Chicago were stunned, and the people of the Englewood neighborhood watched the sightseers with a combination of fear and loathing, sickened over the terrible things that brought the crowds to their streets. Then, on August 19th, the castle burned to the ground. Three explosions thundered through the neighborhood just after midnight, and minutes later, a blaze erupted from the abandoned structure. In less than an hour, the roof had caved in, the walls began to collapse onto themselves. A gas can was discovered among the smoldering ruins, and, rumor, and rumors argued back and forth between accomplice of Holmes burning down the house to hide his role in the, in the horror and arson committed by an outraged neighbor. Mm. The mystery was never solved, but regardless, the castle was gone for good. What was gone for good in that sense? <laughs> <laughs> the lot where the castle was located remained empty for many years until finally... Excuse me. A U.S. post office was built on the site in 1938. I bet that post office is haunted. As oh fuck. my god! There, um, there were many in the area who had not forgotten the storm, the stories of Holmes Castle, or the tales of people who claimed to hear moaning and crying coming from the ground. <laughs> telling you. Even after the post office, I'm telling you. Even after the <laughs> post office was constructed, local folks often walked on the opposite side of the street rather than to pass too close by the site where torture and murder had taken place. Neighbors who walked their dogs past the new building claims their animals would often pull away from it, barking and whining because it's haunted. As something <laughs> they could see or sense. Something which remained invisible to their human masters. It's haunted. It's haunted. Ghosts. It's haunted. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Uh, in addition, postal workers in the building had their own encounters in the place because it's haunted. Often telling, <laughs> often telling of strange sounds and feelings that they couldn't explain because they're ghosts. Oh the location God. was certainly ripe for a haunting and the stories believed. I'm going to cut that sentence too. Um, the trial of Herman Mudgett, H.H. H. Holmes, began in Philadelphia just before Halloween of 1895. It lasted only for six days, but was one of the most sensational of the century. Oh, my God. The newspapers reported trial it. Trial of the century. <laughs> the news newspapers reported it in a lurid and sensational manner. Ooh. Sensational. sensational. And besides the mysteries of the castle to report on, which were reported by length of several witnesses, Holmes created many exciting scenes in the courtroom. 
He broke down and wept when Georgiana took the stand as a witness for the state and eventually discharged Ernie, di- eventually discharged his attorneys and attempted to conduct his own defense. Don't do that. It was <laughs> said that Holmes was actually outstanding, clever, and shrewd as an attorney, but it was to no avail, obviously. The jury deliberated for just two and a half hours before returning a guilty verdict. Afterward, they reported that they had agreed on a verdict in just one minute. Wow. But had remained out longer for the sake of appearances. I love that. They walked in, they're like, yeah, he's guilty. They're like, let's <laughs> order lunch. Yeah. <laughs> let's get this Let's get this free lunch in, and then we'll go out, take our time. On November 30th, the judge passed a sentence of death. His case was appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who affirmed the verdict, and the governor refused to intervene. Holmes was scheduled to die on May 7th, 1896, just nine days before his 36th birthday. Mm. He was young. My God. Yeah. By now, the details of the case had been made public and people were angry, horrified and fascinated, especially in Chicago, where the most of where most of the evil had occurred. Holmes had provided a lurid confession of torture and murder that appeared in newspapers and magazines, providing um, providing a litany of depravity (laughs) that I don't even know what the that word means uh with the most insane killers of all time even if his story was embellished the actual evidence of holmes crime ranks him as one of the country's most active murderers he remained unrepentant even at the end just before his execution he visited with two catholic priests in his cell and even took communion with them although refused to ask forgiveness for his crimes he was led from his cell to the gallows and a black hood was placed over his head the trap door opened beneath him and holmes quickly dropped his head snapped to the side, his fingers clenched, and his feet danced for several minutes afterward, causing many spectators to look away. Although the force of the fall had broken his neck and the rope pulled so tight that it had literally embedded itself in his flesh, his heart continued to beat for nearly 15 minutes. Oh, my God. He was finally declared dead at 1025 a.m. on May 7, 1896. Fearful of grave robbers, he left explicit instructions for his burial. Ironically, a man did offer a large sum of money for his body. A grave 10 feet deep, 8 feet long, and 5 foot wide was dug. In the coffin, Holmes' face was covered with a cloth and cement poured over every part of his body. Mm. 13 men dragged the coffin to the grave. The weight of the coffin caused it to fall into the grave upside down. Instead of facing the heavens, he faced hell. Wow. Oh, shit. Goodness. <laughs> um, I think that if you... Take other people's lives. You do not have any say in how you are buried. Okay. Get it. Unless it was an accident. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That Unless makes we, we knew you meant that. But like. We knew you meant that. You're worried about grave robbers? Okay. Well, what about all of the insurance money you robbed and those horses you stole? Those poor horses. Oh my God. You asshole. There were. <laughs> There were a couple of macabre legends associated with Holmes' execution. One story claimed that a lightning bolt had ripped through the sky at the precise moment the rope snapped his neck, but this was not the strangest one. The most enduring supernatural legend of H.H. Holmes' death is that of the Holmes' curse. The story began shortly after his execution, leading to speculation that his spirit did not rest in peace. Some believe that, well, yeah, you trapped it in a cement. Oh, my God. I mean. Upside down. Upside down. (laughs) Obviously, he's not pleased. Some believed that he was still carrying on his gruesome work from beyond the grave. And even to the skeptical, some of the events that took place after his death after his death are a bit disconcerting. A short time after he was buried under two tons of concrete, the first strange death occurred. The first to die was Dr. William K. Matten, a coroner's physician who had been a major witness in the trial. He suddenly dropped dead from blood poisoning. Oh. 
More deaths followed in rapid, rapid order, including that of the head coroner, Dr. Ashbridge, and the trial judge who had sentenced Holmes to death. Both men were diagnosed with sudden and previously unknown deadly illnesses. Next, the superintendent of the prison where Holmes had been incarcerated committed suicide. The reason for taking his own life was never discovered. Then, the father of Holmes, one of Holmes' victims was horribly burned in a gas explosion, and the remarkably healthy Pinkerton agent Fred Geyer suddenly became ill. Not long after, the office of the claims manager for the insurance company that Holmes had cheated caught fire and burned. Everything in the office was destroyed except for a framed copy of Holmes' arrest warrants and two portraits of the killer. Stop! Many of those who are already convinced of a curse saw this as an ominous warning. Obviously. Several weeks after the hanging, one of the priests who prayed with Holmes before his execution was found dead in the yard behind his church. The coroner ruled his death as uremic poisoning, and, but according to reports, he had been badly beaten and robbed. A few days later, Linford Biles, who had been a jury foreman, who had been jury foreman in the Holmes trial, was electrocuted in a bizarre accident involving the electrical wires above his house. Stop! In the years that followed, others involved with Holmes also met with violent deaths, including a, including the train robber Marion Hedgepeth. He remained in prison after informing on Holmes, although he had expected a pardon that never came. On the day of, on the very day of Holmes' execution, he was transferred to the Missouri State Prison to finish out his sentence. As time passed, Hedgepeth gained many supporters. Um, well, where's the talk about his death? Oh, my God. I want to know how he died. Me, too. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. We got it. Okay. Got it. Sorry. As time passed, Hedgepeth gained many supporters to his cause, including several newspapers who wrote of his role in getting Holmes prosecuted. In mm-hmm. 1906, he finally got his pardon and was released. Despite the claims that he, made, he had made about his rehabilitation, including that he spent each day in prison reading his Bible, Hedgepeth was arrested in September of 1907 for blowing up a safe in Omaha, Nebraska. Oops. He was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was released, however, when it was discovered that he was dying from tuberculosis. Oh, my God. In spite of his medical condition, he assembled a new gang. Yes. <laughs> and at midnight on New Year's Eve in 1910, he attempted to rob a saloon in all of all places Chicago. I need to assemble a gang and rob a saloon so yeah. bad right now. As he was placing the money from... As he was placing the money from the till. From the till. <laughs> into a burlap bag, a policeman wandered into the place for no reason and shot him. Hedgepeth was dead before he hit the floor. Oh my God. That's H.H. H. Holmes. That was insane. That was wild. That was a good one. I even didn't know most of that stuff. <laughs> I didn't know a lot of it. Like, I knew the house stuff. Yeah. And that was about it. Yeah. I knew the house that was stuff. In- that was absolutely insane. The Holmes curse thing, like, come on. I love it. <sighs> I w- I'm one of those people that I don't believe in curses. I don't believe in ghosts. Yeah, but But that. if you show me a tiny little bit of evidence, <laughs> I will get all wrapped up in it. I'm like, fuck, I believe in all this shit right now. Yeah, I want to go. I I wonder if that post office is still on 63rd Street in We should Chicago. go visit. Oh, my God, I'll be in Chicago next month. It looks like it still is a post office. Oh, fuck. Yeah. I need to mail a letter. As of July 2017, on the site now is U.S. Post Office, which has been there since the remaining original structure was raised and the property was sold in 1938. So, yeah, I mean, it's still a post office. We're making a trip. There you go. Yeah, it's still there. Oh, my gosh. (gasps) I'm going to see a picture. You think it's spooky? No, it's not that spooky. Let me see. It's like a post office. Let me see it. (laughs) Oh, that's all right. It could be haunted, though. 
Looks ha- more haunted than our local post office. You're correct. Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Spooky. That was pretty good. I like that. That was a good a story. scurry one. Yeah. Mm. It's like a real bad guy one. It is a real bad guy one. Yeah, like I like, like it. It's like a real, a real bad one. Like my lady was just a selfish bitch, but this is like a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a dickwad. A dickwad. Yeah. Yeah. Douchebag. To quote the captain, a bit, real big douche canoe. A real big douche canoe. Oh, my gosh. All right. I'm hungry. Me too, and I have a meeting at one. So we better go eat. I guess. Okay. Thanks for listening. Share with your friends. Thanks, guys. Uh, review us and rate us. Mm-hmm. And if you leave a nice review, we'll read it. On we'll talk episode, about you. And we'll talk about you. If you leave us a bad one. We'll still we, talk about you. We will talk about you, but it won't be very nice. Exactly.